Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film curator and historian Alicia Fletcher and artist and musician Taya Munster. Movie monsters have rules. Dracula doesn't do sunlight or garlic or stakes through the heart. Werewolves, not so into silver bullets and uncontrollable in a full moon. But zombies, well, the Walking Dead are something totally different, and that's possibly what makes them one of the most accessible and exciting movie monsters on screen. Even the definition of what a zombie is has changed from the movies of the 30s up until now. Where they come from, how to kill them, can they even be killed, do they think or talk, are they always nightmarish, or can they be funny? All fodder to play with in the zombie film. Now today, we're going to look at two movies from 1985 about the living dead, but that's about where their similarities end. Taya, this is a genre that you have a particular attachment to. So can you walk us through it a little bit? Yeah, for sure I can. Um, I think when we look at the genre, we have to look at the first zombie movies, which in 1932, it starts with White Zombie and with Bela Lugosi. And these first zombies were like the Haitian zombies. So very different than the zombies we see today. And then um, in 1943, there was I Walked with the Zombie. And that's also... Val Luton production, beautiful, beautiful film, although all this Haitian zombie. And then in the 1950s comes one of my favorite kind of genres for film. And we see Plan 9 from Outer Space <laughs> and Invisible Invaders. And these were like aliens that come down, infect the dead and use the dead to take over the earth. And then I think it's important to mention 1964, Last Man on Earth with, mm. with Vincent Price. Although these are more ghouls and vampires, you start to see the zombie take on like a horde mentality. And they also become loved ones. And I think this is where George Romero picks up on is that mm -hmm. we see the dead become as our loved ones. Like we see our loved ones become dead and we still love them. But it doesn't end well ever. <laughs> it never ends well, but it's like that personal touch that we start to see in the movies. And then in 1968, George Romero comes out with Night of the Living Dead, which was originally titled Night of the Flesh Eaters. Of course, he loses the rights because he changes the name to Night of the Living Dead. And but it creates this phenomena of zombie movies in the seventies with like Italian zombie movies, um, tombs of the blind dead. Um, it influences people like Argento, John Carpenter, um, all these filmmakers we know and love. And arguably because he lost the rights, um, you know, when it was released and anyone could duplicate the prints, it could be duplicated for television, all of that. I would say there's an argument that that is what made it so canonical and so famous. Is it, it really was meant to be a local midnight movie filmed in Pittsburgh for Pittsburgh audiences. And it gained this reputation and this following because 
it got shown everywhere because people could show it for free. Yeah, it was like this, uh, it kind of worked out in Romero's favor because how else do you get your picture out to such a wide audience? Yeah. And it just, yeah. And like, even now it's, it's like the film you always see playing in a horror film. Like whenever mm -hmm. they're watching a horror movie. Free. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you can put it on your drive-in screen or the TV that they're watching in the living room because you wouldn't have to pay rights. Whereas if you show The Wizard of Oz, you're going to be licensing it from MGM for, you know, a lot of money. Yeah, so I I think, I mean, that's how I saw, that's the first horror movie I saw was Night of the Living Dead. It might not have been the first one, but it was the first one that really affected me. And I saw that late at night on TV as a, as a child. And I was just really taken aback by it. It was scary and, but it was amazing. And I think that's the thing about zombies is they have this sense of community. And as we start to see, and we look at day of the dead, it's like this community breaking down, but the zombies always have a, a community. So. And, you know, we're talking to someone who is the head of like the zombie community in Toronto, because you founded the zombie walk in Toronto, and then it became duplicated in a lot of other cities, right? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit, a bit about that? Because I'm pretty sure our listeners want to hear. <laughs> how, how did that happen? The idea. Yeah, how you had the idea. I mean, and you've obviously met Romero several times, and I, yeah. I love listening to your stories about not just Romero, but some of the stars of all the zombie films who participated. Walk me through the genesis of the Toronto Zombie Walk. I love zombies my whole life. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool? And to me, I related to zombies. This is why it's interesting. We're going to talk about Return of the Living Dead, too, is um, as a punk, like I kind of saw zombies. I saw monsters as the outsider of society. And then I, when I saw Return of the Living Dead, I was like, oh, my gosh, yeah, zombies and punks. It's like a big community of outsiders that get together and they, you know, rile against things. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I had a group of people that wanted to dress up as zombies and walk around the neighborhoods and just like freak people out. And that like, turned out honestly. to be a very large community of people. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> little did so you I know that you aren't really an outsider. We all want to do that. Yeah, little did I know everyone feels like that, which I realize now later in life that we all kind of feel on the fringe and um and it's just fun. And the thing with the zombies is there's so many styles of zombies you can be. It's like you can be a lawyer, you can be a nurse, you can be a Harry Krishna zombie, like you can Clown be any kind zombie, of, ballet, yeah. ballerina zombie. Yes, yes. In this ballerina zone. zombie. Which is what's so great about Romero's is that there's real people in there. It's not just people in running shoes, jeans, and t-shirts like in Dawn of the Dead, Zack Snyder's one, right? Like it's a very different yes. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And the zombies are the memorable characters. Like that's who you remember, Bub. Like you don't yeah. forget oh, Bub. Big Daddy in the new, the new series, right? Yeah. Big Daddy is such an interesting character because he's almost a, a, a hero. And you're just like, how did that happen that you were able to flip that script? But I think about like the, the subversiveness in the zombie walk itself and the, the fuck units to society um, where like when I was going through the Montreal one, it was just after um, Steve Jobs had died. And I'd seen like nine zombified Steve Jobs with like various oh Apple products off them. It's like, that's really fun. <laughs> that's amazing. So it's like a celebration of these people's lives while at the same time being like, a, okay, guys, that's tasteless, but wonderful, you know? Yeah, I, it was a very weird thing because that's what I expected. I just expected a few people, fringe people to show up and that's what we do, walk through the neighborhoods. And then, so I ran the, the first one, 2003, and I put up flyers everywhere. And then only like seven people came, I think it was, my yeah, I think it was seven people that year. 
might have been 12. That's a party. That's a party. (laughs) Woman that was on came to the first walk. She moved to Vancouver and started one there. And her first one, I'm originally from BC. And my thing was when I moved out to Ontario, I'm like, nobody wanted to dress up like ever. Like they loved horror. They loved gore. They loved watching the movies, but nobody ever, I'm like, do you want to dress as a zombie? (laughs) Nobody wanted to, but I was used to like dressing up. So when she moved out there and started one, it was like a hundred people, her first one. Wow. Wow. And then it moved to San Francisco from there. And then it moved throughout the States and then it just kind of blew up. And, um, it was very exciting. And then I started having to get permits and advertisers and, it just wasn't very punk rock. <sighs> the corporate By year world 13. Is Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> but it was fun. I did, I did miss it, but it was just like really hard to raise like $40,000 because <sighs> we had to start clear, like closing streets and rerouting streetcars and like it just got insane. You're a pioneer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I know you know that about yourself, but you, you just, you are. You're a pioneer. Thank you. I really appreciate that. No, it's amazing. And I just, I also love the fact there's an inherent danger where if you hadn't have taken all those steps, like a good practical organizer, if someone got hit by a car, you wouldn't know if they were hurt or not because they're already covered in blood and injured. Well, that's the thing. And I, the first ones, I didn't care. Like, honestly, like, no, it's not, I didn't care about them. I was just, I wasn't thinking in that term. I was like, yeah. wow, this is cool. We rule the earth. And like, we're zombies. We're, <laughs> that's awesome. We've come together to eat flesh. We're terrorizing the city. I got kicked out of the graveyard. I got kicked out of Eaton Center. I got kicked <laughs> out of everywhere. Who hasn't Young been kicked it. out of Eaton Center, really? That's around the time I moved to Toronto. That was a different time. I feel like today, if you showed up at the Eaton Center, as a zombie, the Eaton Center would be, you know, kind of copacetic because it'd be like, oh yeah, put it on Instagram. This is like a thing. But 2003 was like a very conservative city. I mean, it still oh, is, yeah. but it, yeah, it's not the same sort of viralness or social media friendly events that you see pop-ups weren't a thing in 2003 and 2004. Like you, you, it really was a different time in the city. Yeah, it was, it was definitely, it needed some shaking up here. Yeah. I felt so <laughs> we're also going to get into this in the films, but it's also a very budget friendly way to dress up. Like you don't require huge elaborate prosthetics. You don't need like enormous fuzzy costumes. You just, you know, you throw on some fake blood, some bruising, some fun clothes that are ripped up and you're a zombie and you shuffle. You're good to go. But I will say, having seen some of the photos of both uh, the Toronto zombie walk and abroad, there are people who put the work in and yeah. put the investment and really look like they could be on a film set in terms of like Tom Savini-esque prosthetics. Like it is just such an artistry and a fun way of communicating it that I, I just, I love looking at those like photo galleries of all the best zombies from city to city. Uh, it was the creativity every year. Pe- what people brought to the table was like, beyond anything I ever imagined when I first started it. And it just is like amazing. All right. Well, let's get into our first movie today that involves Tom Savini. So there are six movies in Romero's Living Dead series, Night of the, Dawn of the, Day of the, Land of the, Dire of the, and finally in 2009, Survival of the. Loosely connected within the same world, 1968's Night of the Living Dead broke a lot of film boundaries and announced Romero as a director to be reckoned with. The Living Dead series always had some sort of bigger message, be it race and civil rights movement, mass consumerism, or in 1985, Day of the Dead, Science, Communication, and Authoritarianism. Day was the third movie in the original trilogy, and seemingly it has a relatively happy ending. 
they end up on a beach. Or does it? Are there any happy endings in any of these movies? Maybe Shaun of the Dead? I think Shaun of the Dead is the only one that has one. All right, let's get into Day of the Dead, which Taya is wearing a t-shirt of because she is thematically appropriately dressed, as always. And we'll get into the series behind (laughs) and in front of it. Alicia, do you want to give us a quick little plot summary on this one in case someone hasn't seen it? You can catch us up in all the movies if you like. (laughs) I think think Taya did an amazing job of summarizing all of Romero's zombiedom and zombie history, but this is the third film, 1985, so keeping in mind that Dawn of the Dead is 78. So a number of years have passed, and what's great about the plot of this film is we're not sure if it's, you know, it's very clearly 1985, it's not a period piece, so has this outbreak of zombies been happening since 68, and we're now in, you know, year 17, or is it, you know, we're not sure what the timeline and how condensed it is. What we do know is that there are survivors. Um, this takes place in Florida, and it's partially filmed in Fort Myers, but mostly filmed in Pittsburgh, um, outside of Pittsburgh in a mine. And so the military has kind of taken over an operation of trying to investigate with scientists like what the origins of this outbreak is, how to reverse it. So there's a lot of like scientific experimentation. So they're capturing zombies, um, like you know, like lab rats, bringing them down to a lab that's in a mine, and you know, experimenting slash torturing. It's the first film where you get a lot of sympathy for the zombie, um, which is a trope that's going to carry through for the rest of zombiedom. Uh, And we have one zombie in particular that's being experimented on by Dr. Frankenstein. It's a nickname, Dr. Frankenstein. Uh, And it's Bub. Bub is different than the other zombies. He has muscle memory. He remembers how to start a Walkman. He remembers how to kind of like... Um, He was clearly once in the military himself because he's saluting and he can, you know, arm a gun. And where the real threat is, is we have this really great uh, scientist. We have another female protagonist in this film, arguably probably the greatest of the female protagonists out of the whole series, uh, Dr. Sarah Bowman, who's played by uh, Laurie Cardiel. Um, And she is... She's under threat because she's the only woman in this kind of underground community. There's a lot of sexual threat, I would say. Yeah. Um, and the, the guys who are running the military, headed by Captain Henry Rhodes, by, um, played by Joseph Pilato, who you do see in Dawn of the Dead, I think, as a cop, is an asshole. Like, he is, it's not really zombies that are going to be undoing of humankind. It's actually this sort of unchecked power that we're seeing and these power dynamics uh, underground that is the real threat. So... Eventually, obviously, things go awry. Zombies get into the mine. We're having a lot of fun. Yada, yada, yada. I don't know. <laughs> like, I think we, can, we can all picture what, what goes on from there. And I think that some of the, one of the joys I have of any of the Romero movies is like, how is this going to go wrong? You know, because in all of them, there's like a period of stasis where like we become the real monsters and then something happens. Yeah. Like, for example, the bikers break in in Dawn of the Dead. Um, in this one, it's uh, one of them gets severe cabin fever and PTSD disorder and ends up opening the doors himself, sacrificing himself and opening the doors. So it's always like, when is the mayhem going to start? And that provides an instant suspense for you of like, this is going to happen and it's going to be great what it does. But how is it going to happen? It's like a little gift. You walk through seeing this the first time? Oh yeah, I can walk you through seeing this the first time because we all hated this movie when it first came out <laughs> after watching Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. Yeah. We were like, what is this movie? Like, <laughs> it was, um, you know, but what we didn't, I think we weren't looking at it with a critical eye, right? And maybe it was a, ahead of its time because then I watched it five years later and I was like, I, this movie is like my favorite Romero <laughs> movie ever. Like, but I think it was that turning of the zombie into something 
That was the most lovable character. And there's no community. We didn't, we didn't care for any like roads. We want to see him dead. Like well, he dies horrifically. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> it's so, it's so amazing. Okay. The, okay. Yeah. I have to say the gore effects are it amazing. It is Savini having and, a course, field day. Savini <laughs> is like brilliant. And he just got his, he was able to like, just be his full creative self and like do whatever he wanted. Cause this is an insane movie for like zombie kills and stuff. When you first saw it, you were like, I don't like anyone in this. I'm, I feel like really disconnected to the people in this film, except for maybe Sarah. And I just don't really, I get, it really creeps me out. Like, and also being a, being a woman watching it is, uh, you know, it's scary. It's, it's scary, not in a good way. Like in a, for me, the threat of sexual violence, I am so glad he doesn't take it further than the threat because I feel like a modern movie wouldn't have that restraint, but the threat Mm -hmm. is very palpable and it's realistic, which is, I think what makes it even more uncomfortable. Yes, exactly. It's very, it's very dark. It's very nihilistic. It's, based on our mistrust of, of uh, the government, of the military. Um, we're kind of seeing that now, right? Like, it's, like l- watching it now with what's going on, it's, it's very interesting. He's always, you mean, you, you hinted at this, he's always ahead of the time. Like in 78 with Dawn of the Dead, he was ahead of the idea of sc- you know, skewering consumerism by setting yeah. it in a mall. And I think with 85, he's way ahead of, you know, like things like the war in Iraq and way ahead of mistrust of um, the government and military and science as well. And um, there's a jadedness to this film that's not there in Night of the Living Dead and, and Dawn of the Dead. And that jadedness to me is pure 1980s. Like thinking about films like Wall Street and I'm just like, yes, this actually makes sense, but I get why it was rejected upon its release. And it's sad because I know Romero, this is his personal favorite. He's always kind of said that about his own series. And I, I think that's amazing. And he also wanted this to be like the gone with the wind of zombie films. And unfortunately, <laughs> the budget got slashed in half, or maybe even more. And he had to really revise the script and revise the story he wanted to tell. But this is a, a point where he's almost in the 20th year of his career. And they're finally giving him studio money and they're finally giving him the budget that he needs and then kind of taking it away, which is unfortunate. It was, but it made it a very personal film, I think. So you had to really work with the actors and the characters to bring about that story. And I think, I think it really works, but, but like most of his films, sometimes we like night of the living dead, you don't see, see that till years after you're like, wow. I can compare this very similarly to the reception of and also how I feel about the Alien initial trilogy, because you have this like growing of story and the mythology of like the xenomorphs as well as the zombies. But people also hated the third installment of that because they found it too dark and too dour and too nihilistic. But it's like, but that's the the logical progression of these stories. That's how it's going to go. So like it's kind of it's Mm -hmm. it's perfect. And I think now people obviously have reevaluated both of those series is being like, no, that's how the story has to end. It makes the most sense. It's the most satisfying in a really unfortunate way. I thought the ending was really positive. Like the idea that we could start again. Yeah. Maybe the world's gone, but maybe that's not a bad thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Florida. I mean, I guess is Florida a logical place that you would want to end up as the world is ending. That to me feels like maybe I'm thinking about Florida (laughs) 2020 is like a 
bad. I guess they're on an island, right? When yeah. they land, yeah. this is a spoiler. Like they get, they escape in a helicopter, same as Dawn of the Dead. Uh, and it, it's, it's, I think they're probably like in the keys or something like that. And uh, so ostensibly, if there were no zombies on that island, when the outbreak or no people on that island, when the outbreak happened, they actually might be protected, but they would have no resources. But you know, later they're going to come on a boat. That's true. Or in World War Z, what happens where they walk <laughs> underneath the water, right? Where that's what they, because they don't have to breathe. So they walk through the water to get wherever they need yeah. to breathe. Yeah. It's a logical well, progression. Exactly. It's just how this works. <laughs> now, okay, come bringing us into World War Z. Here's a, here's a question for you. So we talked about how the budget got slashed here. If Romero had ever been given $190 million, which was the budget for World War Z, what would he have made and would it have been better than World War Z, which I have serious issues with? It's not hard to be better than <laughs> That is true. That is true. But like, what, what do you think he would have done with that? Because these stories are beautiful, self-contained little almost bottle episodes in each one. They're, that's one of kind of his strength of all of his films. Well, I heard he wanted to make it like Raiders of the Lost Ark, like these oh. big, like roaming, like scenes and like more adventure like you know take it out of the bottle episode for every single one of them yeah and I think that yeah I think that uh he would not take away from the zombies like the zombies wouldn't be all the same they'd be there's they're all different and he'd still do that so they'd probably get paid because I think they only got a dollar a dollar a newspaper and a hat that said I was Which, I mean, they had no problem fulfilling the casting call. So many oh. Pittsburgh. And there are people that had appeared in uh, Dawn of the Dead. I think there's a few that had appeared in Night of the Dead that just keep coming back and being zombies. Some, some people were like five different zombies. And there's some great behind-the-scenes footage that you can seek out of these, you know, lawyers that, yeah. and, like, secretaries and nurses who are total deadheads and uh, just showed up, both in Florida and, and in Pittsburgh. And I really love that. I do... You know, looking at Romero, and I think sometimes we forget that he is a pioneering independent filmmaker. Yeah. I know in watching some interviews in the lead up to his death, I don't know if he would have taken the $190 million. I think he he was really burned by Hollywood um, on a, a several productions, and he knew what his strengths were, and he knew what his atelier was, and he was such a, and keep in mind, he was based in Toronto for the last years of his life, as well as his filmmaking practice. He, he built an atelier of training filmmakers and young people and young um, professionals in the film world that, you know, he clearly was not interested in making the blockbusters or the World War Zs. He knew what he loved and why he was doing this. And he's such a, he was such a genuine person. I agree. I think he would just do, he'd be all hard about it. Like if, if he had the money, that's what I, I think he would just like pay the zombies and he would, he would <laughs> like 20 bucks. <laughs> Yeah, he would be very genuine. And um, I don't know, maybe that's why he didn't get it at that time. Maybe he wasn't, he would have done like something crazy. Like, I can't see him doing it, though, because he's such a, he's always just been such a good guy. He wouldn't have uh, settled in Toronto as an American if he was interested in you know, he would have been the LA guy and he rejected that immediately from his you know, realm of possibilities. Yeah, for sure. I think he loved it here. He loved the people here. Yeah. And he's just like, his fans are so dedicated to mm-hmm. him and he's protective. He's also dedicated to his fans. And um, I think he would never want to do that to his fans either. It's, 
bring you computer generated zombies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Seeing how much he also inspired and uplifted the people who were working within his own circle. Like Greg Nicotero is in this film. He's the the head and one of the soldiers. And Greg Nicotero, of course, would be go on to be one of the co-creators of Walking Dead. And then you see him supporting Tom Savini for his entire career, who it like would then go on to make the remake of this and then be, you know, one of the biggest special effects guys ever. And it seems like he found these people and brought them along. Like it's uh, there's so many fun fan theories about all of these different films because different people pop up as different characters within them. It, uh, sometimes they're zombies, sometimes they're human characters in one and then another human character. And it's like, are they the same person and they just changed their name? Like it's it's neat. To, and I, I'm sure that also spurs the fandom as well because it gives people stuff to talk about. It's chewy. It's a mythology. Yeah. I mean, that that's the creating a world that is self-contained and involves a mythology is no, dis, it's not dissimilar from Alien. It's not dissimilar from Star Wars. It's not dissimilar from Lord of the Rings. I think we just fail to remember that Romero did that too um, over a a longer period of time and consistently as the director starting in the 60s going into the 2000s. That's remarkable to me. I have actually heard that Land of the Dead was the day of the dead. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's what he wanted in terms of the screenplay and then it morphed and he remakes it in 2005, right? Land of the Dead. Um, Yeah. So that's a full 20 years. So he's, he's committed to these stories. Um, I love Land of the Dead. Land of the Dead, first yeah. of all, is Dennis Hopper in a zombie <laughs> film. Like, that's <laughs> one of the greatest. It's so great. But that's the uh, one that has all the commercial era. actors in it, right? Like, there's, uh, yeah, but there's a good. bunch of, yeah. No, they're great. I'm not saying they're not. It's just, it's recognizable yeah. people as opposed to people who could be every everyday humans yes. in, in yes. all the rest of them, right? It's, it's Leguizamo too, right? I haven't watched it in quite a while, but it's, it's pretty solid. I have a question for you, Taya. So you talked about seeing this on, for the first time on the screens and being really disappointed by it. However, how did you feel about Bub? Because Bub is the first talking uh, zombie. It's the first almost like one to prove that there's sentience. Was there an attachment there where you're like, this is special and different? Or were you saying, I wish they hadn't gone in this direction and the, the creatures had stayed creatures? You know what? I think I, think I actually really like that. I love anything to do with the character creation of a monster in general and the idea that it could talk and the idea you could train it. And I, I wanted to see more of where that was going. And, mm-hmm. and we do get to see that in the future. But, but yeah, it was, it was hard to take because you also feel so much for the zombie. Say hello, Aunt Alicia. Hello, Aunt Alicia. Hello. It really harkens back to Mary Shelley and Frankenstein's monster, which, you know, it's a joke in the film that they call the scientist Frankenstein, but that is there. And that's the heart of science fiction. That's the heart of horror, the sympathy for the monster. Um, And Romero is so smart to instill the Mary Shelley-ness and the sympathy um, into this, this particular film. I think it just seems like maybe people weren't ready for it. Right. The zombies are the, the ones that you're attached to. I I think he did that on purpose. So we see that later. With the Frankenstein aspect too, uh, something that strikes me, and I don't know if this bothers people, but it's like, they're still human beings, even though they're zombies, you're still watching him deconstruct them in ways that is intended to make you uncomfortable. And like when there's just like a head on the, uh, on the platform, it's a very different experience than the torso that talks and discusses its pain in Return of the Living Dead, which we're about to talk oh, about. I love her. Which I, I do her too. So She's yeah. so good. I love the spinal fluid everywhere, but because of the tone and the sense of humor in that, it's more fun 
weirdly than than this one where like it's like no this is you've taken what is essentially a part of a human what is a human and you're deconstructing it in a way that is very uncomfortable i think yes i think these uh that that's romero's strength is he's personalize these creatures like as people we know people we once knew and that's the horrifying part about it you can't unsee that like your dead relatives the people your comrades like dead like a brain on a table you know like you can't unsee that <laughs> that's all when, it, when you come down to it that's all we really are it's just a, a body bag full of organs <laughs> fluid. and on that positive note let's bring us into a bunch of friends tearing up a bunch of other friends it's return of the living dead and that's coming up after the break Is there any one slapstick bit that makes you laugh no matter what when you see it? For some people, it's a good old-fashioned pratfall or the ever-reliable shot to the groin. For me, it's a full-body launch and a tackle at the knees. And boy, did I ever laugh when a zombie leaps into frame to tackle a police officer headlong in Return of the Living Dead, which is perhaps one of the most self-aware and hilarious entries into zombie filmdom without losing any gore, glorious practical effects, or graphic nudity. Now, for me, it's up there with Shaun of the Dead for best zomcom to date. It's also a movie set in a world where the Night of the Living Dead series of films not only existed, but were secretly based on a real incident where the dead walked and were contained. Alicia, do you love this movie because of Linnea Quigley alone, or is there more to it? I'm just going to check with you quick. I, yeah, I love her. She's she's an icon in this. It's unbelievable. But no, this film ha is a full package for me. Um, this is one of my favorite comedies. This is probably my favorite zombie film. I watch it you know, maybe like twice, three times a year, obviously at Halloween, but sometimes on Easter. Why not? Christmas. <laughs> you like ruining <laughs> holidays. That's your thing. Yes, yeah. that's true. Um, I'm not a punk. I don't identify as a punk, but I identify with a lot of this film and I just think it is pitch perfect. I, every time I watch it, I find something new out of it. Linnea Quigley is phenomenal. Um, but so are a lot of the other female characters and just, I, I have tar man jammies and for the <laughs> listeners what? who don't know who I tar man is, yeah, it's, you know, it's a hand-me-down from my boyfriend. But when I found that t-shirt when we first started dating, um, and it had shrunk, so it wasn't going to cover him. I was like, this is going to be my, like, these are my jams. Uh, and it's like my favorite t-shirt that I, you know, if I'm going on vacation, you know, some people like pack nice nightgowns or like negligees. I'm like, Tarman, Tarman shirt. Um, <laughs> I yeah, it's it's uh it's got holes in it. It's falling apart. They're your jams, uh, jam. Totally. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I guess yeah, I'm a big fan of this. <laughs> just a little. Taya, do you want to walk us through the plot just a little bit here so people know what they're getting into? Well, it's interesting because these are both kind of like they are both Night of the Living Dead, so to be extensions of the story. So this was written by Jean Rousseau and then adapted by Dan O'Bannon. And it is this crazy story. I have to say crazy because it's like kind of madcap and wild story yes. about a fellow who gets a job at a mausoleum <laughs> um, where they happen to be holding tanks with uh, military weapons, which are zombies in uh, vats of trioxin. And then these punks who go to a graveyard to party because that's where you go to party. And... Um, the triaxin leaks and uh, zombies madness ensues. 
my favorite is like all this because there's a lot of like scientific specimens so if you think about like classrooms or like you know mummified there's like these mummified dogs that are split in half for so teaching rough. purposes and then when the trioxin you know leaks through the you get these like little animated half dogs running it's it's absurd or like you know cadavers like science cadavers for doctors to experiment on um those coming alive you actually get to see kind of for the first time all of the zombies come up from the grave like actually see them like emerge because you don't see that in dawn and you don't no. really see that they're in the graveyard in night of the living dead but we don't see them actually like kick open their coffin lid and shoot an arm up through the earth and uh so much of like what we consider canonical zombie tropes actually came from this film yeah in terms of like brains like they, they it's not just the flesh it's actually the brains that they want to eat and uh the idea that you know I don't know. It's, it's remarkable. It's a remarkable film. I thought it was interesting you picked these two films because then there was the other side of the really hardcore zombie people that this film was not received well by them because zombies eat brains, which we thought they were flesh eaters. So there's that whole argument, do zombies eat brains or do they eat flesh? And then the whole thing is they have running zombies. Yep as well and zombies talking zombies too which we saw a little bit of with bob but now they not like we do not like full send more sentences. cops <laughs> oh my so god fun. yeah first it's so a zombie gets on the cb radio of an ambulance and says send more paramedics so funny which is one of the funniest jokes i've ever seen and then you're right becky later he gets into i think it's the same zombie gets into a police car on the cb radio remembers how to use a cb radio and says send more cops <laughs> It is, yeah, that's probably my favorite joke of the whole film. So many uh, classic, like classic dialogues, like I'll use daily, like this is not a costume, it's a way of life, Suicide <laughs> says. Like I use that weekly. Like, Well, this oh, is man. Dan O'Bannon's directorial debut and people will know Dan O'Bannon. He's most often attributed because I think it's the most famous thing he was related to is Alien. But Alien right. is not even remotely relative yeah. to like the rest of or an example of like the rest of his work like I think Dark Star John Carpenter's Dark Star is probably like mm -hmm. the closest thing you can think of in terms of the sense of humor he's actually in it he's one of the actors and there's like this like sentient beach ball that's an alien in that it's just it's goofy and fun and weird and all of O'Bannon's stuff that he writes has that same really goofy fun tone so it's interesting to me that we talk about Alien because, I mean, it's so recognizable and so iconic, but that was really more Ridley Scott's sort of dark influence yes. than it is Dan O'Bannon's. This, I feel mm -hmm. like, is quintessential O'Bannon. Absolutely. Yeah. And I like that it's like a mad magazine, like there's different jokes in it. Like, yeah, every time you watch it, you see something new in it or something in the background or that you didn't notice before. That's it's a great point to bring up comics because if we look at where Romero is in his filmmaking, 82 is Creepshow. Um, and I right. love Creepshow. And that is like literally an Brilliant. animated, you know, a comic brought to life. And I, I think there's so much Creepshow here in Return of the Living Dead. Um, and it's done really effectively where while it's not a comic book adaptation per se, they're using the same subversiveness that Romero does to bring multiple stories to life in Creepshow. Taya, I'm going to make the assumption that you are a Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 fan. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> safe assumption, Becky. Safe assumption. Thank yeah. you. I don't like <laughs> to put words in people's mouths. I'm just saying. But this to me was, so this was originally supposed to be directed by Toby Hooper, but he was busy right. at the time. So 
I'm like, I can see why they would go to him first based on something mm-hmm. like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. He went off to go do life. He hasn't done Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 by 1985. He would do that later. But a year later. A year later. Yeah, because he did Life Force first, which he he couldn't do this because he was doing Life Force because he had his whole canon arrangement. Go back and listen to our episodes on that, which explain that whole relationship in detail. But um, at this point, he was coming off of Poltergeist and he didn't have quite that like that same sense of humor but he did have the camp so why do you think they would go to toby hooper for something this like raucous and wild and would it have been the same film like uh, uh, eaten alive is kind of goofy too isn't it mm-hmm. i think that he wanted to do a 3d film right toby interesting hooper. you're right okay. yes you're t- i did briefly read that you're totally right so i think it was i think it would would have been a lot more serious because you had a whole bunch of 3d films coming out at that time that were scare flicks, like, but nothing really silly, you know, like they were scary. Yeah. I mean, the idea that it takes so long to truly marry horror, gore and comedy. I mean, they, there's some examples, but like, it's really like 85. It just nails it really, really well. And I think this is like the primary film that proves that you can make something sickly and and gross and terrifying and also put in the laughs and you don't compromise either genre by doing so I think so too and I I think that in the 80s we were kind of on the verge of it because there's also Night of the Creeps Night of the Comet like all these kind of fun where teenagers go to the mall a lot about teenagers right like getting the remake of the blob yes it's it's a fun era and but I think this is the most madcap film of them all and for me when it came out and I was 12 I I definitely decided I was a punk I thought they (laughs) were like the coolest people I've ever seen in my life and also the music was all the first it's so good horror rock bands like TSOL the cramps the damned SSQ but all these bands influenced me and a lot of my friends to take on this lifestyle of course later when I looked back at it, I was like, oh my gosh, they weren't very cool. <laughs> <laughs> I love, but I thought those were real puns. I like. love the gratuitous of the nudity where uh, Linnea Quigley oh. is just like, I just don't feel like wearing clothes anymore. So she takes them all off and does a little dance and I am not mad. I know that was really contentious <laughs> because, you know, there is, it's full female frontal nudity and there was a rule that you couldn't show pubic hair on film. So they shaved her pubic right. hair. And by doing that, made it more revealing um, and then had to put like a kind of a prosthetic on. And it's just, it's the most otherworldly, um, monstrous female. I love it so much because it's hypersexual because of how they treat her vagina on screen, which I'm sorry, it's not that normal to see in 1985 in a film that's not NC-17. Yeah, and she's great because she'll, you know, if you go to horror conventions, um, she's probably there. She's very great at keeping the oral history of this film alive. Um, She's a big one with fans and uh, it would go on to become like, well, she already was at this point in 85, but would really become one of the canonical scream queens um, of, of horror. Well, this is one when you go to conventions and up until uh, both of them have passed, uh, Clue Gulliger and James Karen, both of them yeah. would attend conventions as well up into their 80s and w- would talk about how yeah. much fun they had doing this movie. They're so great in this because they take it seriously. 
but then are, are not afraid to be utter camp. And I can't remember which it was of the two. I think it was Karen who got his ear pierced because he was reading the screenplay. <laughs> and like, um, <laughs> O'Bannon was like, now he's a very hip guy. Like he'd wear like cool leather coats. And in his mind, he was like, he went to like a Claire's at the mall and got like an earring. Because it is kind yeah. of odd that this like, <laughs> you know, house husband, this not house husband, this is like this, you know, this married man in his 50s would have this like teenage earring. But, uh, it's a nice detail. It's such a silly detail. But he also brings the empathy as well. The moment where he realizes what he's going to turn into and that he's dying and that he's going to come <laughs> back. And he takes his wedding yeah. ring off and he prays and then he climbs into the crematorium and it's like, oh my <laughs> God, <laughs> I'm just watching, you know, this like a woman's sexy dance and now you're giving me this in the feels. I don't know how I feel about this, guys. I'm getting pulled all over the place. He's really great. It's such a, a satirical performance too. Um I love how he kind of takes the young punk under, it's not really a punk, he's more of like the varsity punk, but uh, the guy who gets the job at the crematorium, how he like takes him under his wing and shows him around. It's just, there's a sweetness. Um, and I think also the young characters are never judged or talked down to. Like they really no. are, everyone's in it. Like whether it's the crazy mortician or like everyone's just in it for the same reason. And uh, you don't get the same sort of terrifying hierarchy that you get in Day of the Dead between genders or between status or in Dawn of the Dead either. No, it's definitely a lighter film. And I think uh, if we look at this, it's like Reagan era yeah. kind of film. I think that uh, it made a lot more at the box office than Day of the Dead, but I think that's because maybe people just needed a really fun they wanted to get away. We're looking at uh, 14 million versus 6 million. So Return of the Dead grossed $14 million and Day brought in 6 million. So less than half, which is And I think rough. Day's yeah. budget was higher. So yeah. even when you factor that in, it it was a pretty big box office box office success. Um, Ebert, like Ebert gave it, I love Roger Ebert because he, he'll either go right in line with me or like way off. But he loves this <laughs> film. And he, you know, he writes that... Um, you know, it's, it's a kind of a sensation machine made out of the usual ingredients. And the real question is whether it's done with style. And he says it is like, it's one of the most stylish films of 1985, even if he doesn't necessarily understand the punk style or the punk aesthetic or what the style is, he could recognize that nothing looks like this and that this was the beginning of something new with both horror and, and the zombie genre. Which is also saying something because 1985, as we have discussed in this podcast and we'll be discussing on the TV show, it is one of the greatest years of all time in film. So you yep. have Back to the Future and Goonies and all of that is out this year. And then you also look at the horror side and this is Fright Night, another fantastic uh, horror Love comedy. So yeah. great. Um, then you, oh the man, I'm trying to think of like all the amazing things that that are, that are in this in 1985 but like it's just such a great year for stylish horror and very specific stylish horror and then this stands out as as holding the test of time there's five of these there are five the last, most recent one was put out in 2005 which I love is called Return of the Living Dead uh, Rave of the Grave which is <laughs> wonderful I'm sure I'm sure the title is better than the film but I am delighted by that I actually don't mind all of them except five is that a rave to the grave? <laughs> That's rave to the grave. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe I have to watch it again. I'm, I'm very much like that. I'll like, it depends on my mood. I might not. Um, but I actually, I love three too. I thought the female uh, main zombie character was amazing. Like, I need blew to watch me away. These. I've only seen this one. So this is good. Maybe I'll get um, some additional jammies. Like, if I like two <laughs> and three, I can get 
A new pair of pajamas replaced the one that has holes in it. But three is the one you most commonly see the poster of because it has that female zombie on the front of the poster. And she's got like, you know, the little bob and she's looking over her shoulder all sexily and like the dangerous. It's great. Oh, I have seen that. It's like Love Never Dies or whatever. Is it the lady from the OC? I genuinely do not know. looking us up. All right. No, I think I've seen this and it's like the mom from the OC. What? It is? I didn't know it was, that was the, that's her. Three. That's very interesting. Yeah, that's her. Yeah. It's the mom from wow. the OC. Okay. Yeah. Wow. My Amanda mind is Clark. blowing Julie, right now. Julie, yeah, yeah. She's Julie Walker in the film is um, Mishka Barton's mom in the OC. That was my <laughs> connection there. That's amazing. I have I seen that one. That no one is idea. pretty good. I like that one. Yeah. I like that. That's where yeah. that's Oh, and it's Brian Usen, of course. It's Brian Usen. That makes sense. Yeah. So that one's not bad. I have to, I should rewatch two, I think. Um, with the kids, because oh. I think there's some fun moments in that one as well. How does the mythology build in that, Tay? Because I haven't seen any of the other ones but the first one, but I love the first one. So is it kind of like Night of the Living Dead where it expands or does it stay actually, pretty linear? How does it work? Yeah, actually, I think it, I, from what I remember, it does because uh, it's the trioxin still. They use trioxin through the whole thing. Um, but then at, at the point by three, they are experimenting on zombies again in a lab. Or, and then I think by four, they're using them as biological weapons. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So almost similar to the way the uh, Romero narrative is going uh, on across lines. But, but, you know, the zombies aren't as personal. And, but the zombies are still characters. What I do love about these films, as we talked about with Romero... The one similar thing is, yeah, you have Tarman. Like these are zombies we will never forget. Yeah, like no. can never forget Tarman. I think what I realized in researching this film is, you know, I was often thinking about what my attraction to Tarman is. And I was looking at like the puppeteer, um, Alan Troutman, who oh, was boy. really interesting. <laughs> uh, and yeah, he's a Muppet guy. So yep. Tarman is essentially a Muppet. And then he kind of does have Muppet eyes when I thought about it. I was like, yeah, that's that's the appeal. This is my Muppet zombie. <laughs> <laughs> all right it's amazing he's yeah. so cool yeah and that that last shot that last shot of this film i and just the musical cue i don't know There's, how do you top that that is wonderful so this does end with a nuke and we are as we've discussed in the the, the podcast previously like 81 to like 86 or 7 is kind of like prime cold war you know mm-hmm. genuine nuke yeah. fears era so to have that ending is so ballsy that it would just be like that someone would just casually nuke a small town yeah. is just <laughs> so and it's just still intended no to be funny exactly but again that's the funny thing cuz that the other movie day of the dead is so dark and dismal yet the ending is kind of i think it's kind of happy yeah and, and this one it's like so fun the whole movie and then the end is just so nihilistic and you know that's a point. sad <laughs> so. all right well on that note we will end the episode and you can decide which ending you would prefer <laughs> it'll be all good alicia fletcher thank you so much for joining us once again uh thank you i would welcome any tarman fan art if you want to send it <laughs> into the podcast email uh i like sometimes go on etsy and i put in tarman and there's not enough out there in my opinion <laughs> you need but one with you. like realistic goo i think that's the thing mm. is you need like one of those slime babies with like uh, uh like the skeleton inside so you can malleable yeah. him yeah i feel like season one i was obsessed with the worm from labyrinth that is wanted, correct 
And then, yeah, this is this season of the podcast. I'm really into tar man. (laughs) The perfect tar man plush. Excellent. And Taya Munster, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You didn't tell us that you were a zombie in one of the Romero films. Can you, can you just. Oh yeah. Okay. So (laughs) do a where's Waldo for people. (laughs) Romero uh, has always been kind to me because I ran the zombie walk and we did a special zombie walk for him. And uh, when he became a Canadian citizen. So we gave him like a little, it was the CN Tower, but a zombie hand holding it, like a little <laughs> word for becoming a Canadian citizen. Oh, that's wonderful. And then uh, he asked me to be in Survival of the Dead. So I got to be in Survival of the Dead. I'm on the dock. Okay. You can't miss me. They're shooting at zombies from the truck and I'm on the dock and I'm in a, in like a waitress costume. Oh my God. So that was a cool thing. I got one of the costumes. Like there's the different levels of zombies. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> But I have orange hair too. Okay. I I think listeners will find this. I'm going to go find it. (laughs) Screenshot. (laughs) Screenshot. Uh, And how do people find your work? Well, I know you're all over the place. (laughs) Yes. It's really like I have a a million aliases, but I am Ghoulie Gal on Instagram. So you can see all the music I do, um, what films I've been in and that sort of thing there. And on I guess I'm also Taya Triffid if you want to look up my TikTok. Okay. You so <laughs> Yeah, it's that's interesting. Um, also, I love that you play the theremin. That is like, I love seeing your theremin work so much. Thank you. Yeah, I'm having I'm having a blast. So. <laughs> the internet generation is a good generation for you to live in. <laughs> it's it's yeah, it's for sure. All right. And you can join us in two weeks where we're going to be looking at movies with pop stars that just happen to be at pivotal points in their career and appearing in movies at the same time. It's Desperately Seeking Susan and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. We're also going to be joined by the fantastic Sydney Urbanek. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. On four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. Today's episode featured Alicia Fletcher and Thea Munster as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. <laughs>